If you have your copy of the Scriptures, let me encourage you to turn to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 will be our text for this morning, specifically verses 10 through 20, and we'll be focusing in particular on verses 11 through 13. Apprenticeships have a long and storied and varied history. They go all the way back to ancient Egypt and Babylonia, where guilds were developed to train workers, craftsmen in various trades to ensure a labor force for the empire. Of course, these this idea of training at the, the feet of a master continued on through the medieval period, and it noticed changes with the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century and the changing needs that came about there. But the idea of apprenticeships continued on into the 20th and even presently into the 21st century. And you see it not just in what we might call the trades, but you see aspects of the idea of apprenticeships, even in what we would refer to as professions or professional activities, engineers, doctors, and others, before they can achieve full certification, they have to go through a period of training at the hands or under the tutelage of a more seasoned professional, even after their years of schooling training. And as the idea of apprenticeships has morphed to meet various needs as they have arisen, in the 21st century, you can apprentice with Creative Karen. I mean no disrespect to Karen at all. But as I was trying to find information about apprenticeships, I stumbled across an opportunity with a lady who has identified herself as Creative Karen. You can apprentice with Karen to create your unique vision, gain basic business skills, Learn how to stay true to your own process and get the support you need to get momentum in your freelance illustration career. And as could never happen before, Karen's illustration apprenticeship is a six-month program where you meet with the coach twice a month via Zoom and interact with her over WhatsApp as you work your way through the process of this apprenticeship. Topics covered in this program include creating your vision, organization for planning and productivity, discipline and play structures. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Maybe if, if you do, you can inform me after, after we're done marketing basics and plans, and, and more. The idea of a Zoom and WhatsApp internship or apprenticeship program really 
in some ways, stretches the idea, uh, doesn't it, of apprenticeship. But such is the age in which we live. But as the idea and practice and implementation of apprenticeships has changed over the years to meet needs and opportunities as they present themselves, the life of a Christian has been and will always be something of a perpetual apprenticeship. And we learn something of the apprenticeship of the Christian life in Philippians 4, 10 through 20, especially in verses 11 through 13. Follow along as I read. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray once more before we consider some aspects of these verses. Heavenly Father, as we come to You once more this morning, Father, we, we commit this time of consideration of Your Word to You for Your purposes. We pray as Mark prayed earlier for our offering. We pray, Father, that this time of stewardship of Your Word would be used in Your providence for the advancement of Your glory. We pray, Father, that You would be pleased by Your Spirit to use the Scriptures to conform us to the image of Christ. We pray, Father, that You would be pleased to use Your Scriptures for anyone who is with us or hearing this sermon who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that Your gift to them from Your Word would be the gift of repentance and faith. So, Father, we commit this time to You and Your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we consider, especially as I said, from verses 11 and thir through 13, the idea of the Christian life as some form of an apprenticeship, my goal, what I, what I think is one of the implications, the appeals of this passage, is that we would cultivate godly contentment in a world of discontent. Cultivate godly contentment in a world of discontent. And there are two things I think that will help us 
pursue this cultivation. First is to recognize the world of discontent, the world of discontent in which we live. And then secondly, to see and perhaps come to a greater understanding of the school of contentment, the school of contentment that believers are walking through. So first, the world of discontent. We live in a world of dissatisfaction, don't we? We heard it in our Scripture passage, our responsive reading earlier in Romans 8. Listen again to Romans 8, 18 through 23. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now there, Paul is describing the reality of the curse that has come because of sin, and that creation has been subjected to this frustration because of sin. And if you were to think back to God's word to Adam in the garden, what did he tell Adam about his future toil? That the ground would frustrate him, that it would bear thorns and thistles, that his work would not be as directive creative or fruitful as it was before the fall. And this is one aspect of the frustration of the creation in which we live. And we all experience this frustration, do we not? But Paul goes on, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly. Creation is longing. Creation is groaning in response to the curse under which it rests. Groaning, longing for freedom longing for relief. And this is, this is the world of discontent. A longing that things would be different that we live in. The Philippians. The Philippians knew the frustrations of life. They knew discontent. And we've talked about this many, many times as we've walked through this small letter. I'm not going to detail it again, but if you would like to, to look on your own, check out Philippians 1.27 and following, and then also chapter 4, verses 2 and following. Philippians 1.27 and following, Chapter 4, verses 2 and following. There, Paul talks about the frustrations that they are experiencing from without and from within. They knew what it was to groan in this curse-ridden world. 
Paul himself details his experience in this world of discontent. He writes this letter from prison, and, it, and much of the first chapter is devoted to his experience and reflecting on his experience in this discontented world. But elsewhere in his writings, he writes about the experience of the apostle to the Gentiles, the one whom God had called in a unique way to bear witness to the hope of Christ to the non-Jewish world. How did he write about his life in this world? Well, perhaps the most well-known of his expression, his detailing of his hardships in this life, 2 Corinthians 11, 23-28. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And he goes on and on. You can note down 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three and following in your notes. And you can see how Paul continues to detail his experience in this discontented, frustrated, curse-ridden world. But it's not just there. 1 Corinthians 4, 11 and following. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 2 Corinthians 1, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 8 and 9. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. He continues in 2 Corinthians 6, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. If you need more, this afternoon, open up your Bible to Acts chapter 13 and just start reading until the end of Acts. And look at how this one who was called by the Holy Spirit in a prayer and fasting meeting of the church at Antioch to go with Barnabas to take the gospel to those who had never heard of the hope in Christ and read about just how luxurious and easy his trips were on his missionary journeys. They were nothing, there was nothing luxurious about them. There was nothing easy about them. Paul, the God-called apostle to the Gentiles, knew what it was over and over and over to experience life 
in this world of discontent. And that is behind what he writes in Philippians 4 about learning. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul learned these things when? Not in the classroom, lest we say the classroom of life. He learned what it was to follow Christ faithfully in this world of discontent. I've talked about these before. I've detailed them before, so I'm not going to linger. But I do, at least in passing, want to mention the following. We experience all manner of frustrations, difficulties, hardships in this discontented world as it weighs under the curse. David Pallison, who I've quoted on occasion before, identifies four categories, or excuse me, five categories of hardships that you and I face in this life. Where do you find yourself in this list? Perhaps the weight that you're feeling in this discontented life is that of general life hardships. You've lost loved ones. The reality of natural disasters and other consequences that just come as a part of living in a fallen world. Have you ever experienced being sinned against by another? Have you experienced relational rejection? Have you experienced others gossiping about you? Or other, even worse forms of being sinned against by another person? What about bodily problems? Anybody here know something about the hardship of bodily problems? They can be short-term. They can be long-term. They can be minor. They can be severe. Have you felt the weight of the curse in the bodily problems that you know? Demonic attack is a reality. There's also the reality of unhelpful, ungodly counsel as we walk through this world of hardship. We live in a discontented world. And I force this point or draw out this point to say, on the one hand, in this world of frustration... There is, brothers and sisters, there is a right, godly discontent. Again, we heard it in Revelation 8, or excuse me, in Romans 8, as the creation groans longing to be free from this curse, so also we who are the children of God, we groan, we long for Life to not be this way any longer? What does godly discontent look like? Well, one, godly discontentment in this world of frustration, first and foremost, looks to God. Looks to God for rescue. 
either temporary rescue or the eternal rescue that is to come for those who are Christ's. Godly discontentment looks to God for rescue. Consider that repeated phrase that we hear in the Psalms. How long, O Lord? Psalm 13, 1-3. How long, O Lord, will You forget me forever? Does it ever feel like as you're walking in this world of frustration that perhaps God has forgotten about you? Friend, He hasn't. He has not at all. But it can feel that way, can it? How long, O Lord, will it be like this? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. The psalmist is looking to God for rescue. But also think about as the the seals of that scroll are opened in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 6. Think about the cry that we hear. When He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before You will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These martyrs are looking to God for eternal justice. At the end of Revelation, we referenced this passage last week. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the longing of a holy, godly discontent in this world weighed down by the curse of sin. Come, Lord Jesus, and rescue us. Fulfill Your promises. And we hear it also in the example of the Apostle Paul. Going back to that, those experiences that he details. Recall what he says in 2 Corinthians 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. There it is. He is looking to rescue from God from this affliction that he, has, he is facing. Three times he asked the Lord to remove this problem, whatever it was, from him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Godly discontent looks to the Lord himself for rescue. Either temporary relief and rescue in the momentary sufferings, or maybe better, and eternal rescue that God has promised to His people in Christ. But godly discontentment in this world of frustration not only looks to God for rescue, but as it looks to God for rescue, it trusts 
or rather we trust, if our discontentment is godly and holy, as we look to God, we trust in His providential and sovereign purposes in our lives. We trust in His sovereign and providential purposes in our lives. This is what Paul continued with in that passage that we just read. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then he continues, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul exhibits as he longs for God's rescue and God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. Where does Paul's discontentment land? It lands in a trust, in a holy contentment, in God's sovereign and providential purposes in his life. And we're not going to read it, but note down 2 Corinthians 4, 7-10. through 10. I read a few verses from that just a moment ago, but there Paul brackets his description of his hardships with a recognition of God's glory and power revealed through His weakness. Godly discontentment, godly discontentment, looks to God for rescue both now and eternally, and it trusts even and especially when the answer is no, my grace is sufficient. It trusts in the purposes and plans of a good, loving, sovereign God who knows and cares. But if we're honest, if we're honest, in our lives, the discontentment that we experience is more often than not, not a holy, godly discontentment that looks to God for rescue, that is actively trusting in His purposes. But all too often do we not experience a sinful discontentment. A sinful discontentment. Frustration that things are just not going the way we want them to go. An anger that I'm not getting what I want to have out of this life or out of another. What does our sinful discontentment look like? Well, if we contrast it with that godly discontentment of looking to God, trusting in His purposes, our sinful discontentment looks for or assumes that there are only earthly solutions to our problems. Whatever the difficulty is that you're facing, the only way that you're going to find relief is by some solution that you or someone in this world can come up with. That's a characteristic of sinful discontentment. Sinful discontentment ignores or forgets God's providential and sovereign purposes. Sinful discontentment doesn't focus on the Lord and His purposes but it focuses chiefly on ourselves and what we're not getting, our unmet desires, our expectations, our unmet hopes. This is the world in which we live, is it not? 
This is our experience in this world. Frustrated, sometimes feeling frustrated, discouraged, angry, anxious, if you go back to what we've talked about over the past number of weeks, in this world cursed by sin. That's the world that we live in. And in that world, friends, in that world, there is a school of contentment that the Lord is walking His people through. A school of contentment. Now, some people love school. Some people hate school. Some of you couldn't wait until you got that sheepskin and you never had to darken the door again. But whether you enjoyed school, didn't enjoy school, whether you like it now or don't like it, friends, we are all in school. We are all in this school of contentment. And I want to make a few observations about this school that I think help us cultivate the godly contentment that Paul models in Philippians 4, 11-13. In the school of contentment, what is the course? What is the course that we're all taking? The course that we're all taking, that we're all walking through, is this discontented world that we live in. That is the course that we're all in that we will never graduate from until either the Lord calls us home or He returns to get His people. But do not despair. Even though we never graduate from this course, we have a curriculum in the school of contentment. What is the curriculum? The curriculum is the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God that provide us guidance and help and hope so that we might know how to put off sinful, ungodly discontent and cultivate a holy discontentment that leads to godly contentment. The Scriptures help us. This is what Paul is doing with his letter to the Philippians, is he not? He's giving them instruction on how they might live with gospel joy in their world of discontent. The Scripture passages that we have cited above and so many others that we just don't have time to even think about in the moment all together are the curriculum that God has provided us to help us walk through this course of a discontented world. But in the school of contentment, we not only have a course and a curriculum, we have a teacher. We have three teachers, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Romans 28, 28 and 29, again, part of our Scripture reading earlier. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. One of the implications of these two verses is that the Heavenly Father is about the work of teaching us, that is, conforming us 
to the image of His Son in all things that we face, all roads that we walk down in this life. Did you catch from what Paul said in Philippians 4? It's not just in hardship that he learned. Notice again, verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know what it is to be low. I know what it is to be high. I know in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty. Friends, we need not only to learn what it is to walk through famine, we need to learn and know what it is to walk through times of feasting to the glory of God. And all of these things God uses, the Father uses to teach us so that we might grow into the image of His Son. And it is the Son who is also our teacher. Remember when the Lord told his follower Ananias, about Saul and his conversion. And Ananias was hesitant because he knew Saul's reputation and he was just not certain that it was a good idea that he go and help this persecutor, formerly persecutor of the church. What did the Lord Jesus say to Ananias? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus himself says that he is going to show Paul, he's going to teach Paul what it is that Paul is going to have to walk through in this world of discontent. And Jesus teaches us, friends. Jesus teaches us by the exa His example that we have recorded in the Scriptures. He shows us how it is that we are to live submissive, obedient lives to the Father in this frustrated, curse-ridden world. But it's not only the Father and the Son who teach us in the school of contentment, but it is also the Spirit. Again, from our reading earlier, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep, for words. Earlier, Romans 8.15, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as son by whom we cry, Abba, Father. One of the implications, friends, here is that the spirit whom God the Father gives to the people of Christ, when they come to faith in Christ, the Spirit teaches us to cry out in our holy discontentment, Father, we need You. We need the rescue that only You can provide. In the school of contentment, there is a course with a curriculum, with a teacher. But there's also a valedictorian, a model student. 
You know who the valedictorian is in the school of contentment? It ain't me. It's not Paul. It's Jesus. Jesus is the valedictorian in this school to whom we are to look. 1 Peter 2, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He continued entrusting Himself. And that is what godly contentment does. It entrusts itself. The person who is experiencing godly contentment in this topsy-turvy world continually entrusts himself, herself, to the loving, sovereign purposes of the Creator God. But Jesus isn't just the valedictorian who shows us the way to go. If you're currently a student in school, do not cheat. It's wrong to cheat, okay? It's wrong to copy. It's wrong to plagiarize. All of it is immoral, all right? But you know what? For all of us who are in this school of contentment, we get to cheat off Jesus, We get to look at His paper. And we don't even have to look. He shows it to us. He shows us the way in which we are to go. But He doesn't merely enable us by showing the way to go. Friends, He enables us to walk in this way by going to the cross for our ungodly discontentment for the sin in our lives that shows up in a myriad of ways. He enables us to cultivate godly discontentment leading to godly contentment by purchasing forgiveness for all of our sin and by giving us His Spirit that enables us to put off sin and put off righteousness. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of Christ, excuse me, let me back up, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, but If Christ is in you, listen to the interchange in Paul's words between Christ, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, through His Spirit who dwells in you. It is the Spirit of Christ dwelling in the people of Christ that empowers, that enables them 
to learn and grow in this holy contentment. Because notice what Paul says in Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul's not talking about making a last second three-pointer. He's not talking about hitting the Grand Slam to win the World Series. He's talking about being enabled to walk with godly contentment in a life that is constantly changing in a world of discontent. He can live empowered by Christ with a contentment that is resting in the purposes and plans of God. But in this school, in this school, there's not only a a course, there's not only a curriculum, we not only have teachers and a valedictorian who not only models but empowers us to grow in this school of contentment. But you know what? We also have classmates. We also have classmates who are walking through this exact same school. Who are your classmates? Look around. Look around the room. We are classmates in this world of discontentment, in this school of contentment together. This is what Paul was rejoicing in in his letter to the Philippians. He was so grateful for their continued partnership in the hardships of life. One of his motivations for writing this letter. What is the goal of this education? What is the goal of walking through these hardships? Well, in part, the goal is that we would learn godly contentment. That we would learn a rest of soul in this upside-down world that trusts in the purposes and plans of God for us individually and collectively. And I think, I think as we put these together, we grow in cultivating godly content by walking through a three-step process. It begins with sinful discontent. That's where we start as we walk through the frustrations, as we experience the hardships in this life. Our natural response is to resist, to turn inward, to look for solutions only in this life in a way that is not trusting God, and in a way that is not striving to honor or follow Him. But God, in His grace, with the curriculum of the Scriptures, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, exposes that sinful discontent. And through repentance and faith, we might grow in cultivating not sinful discontent, but a godly discontent. A a godly discontent that says, you know what? Things are not right. This is not the way of goodness and righteousness. And so God, I need you to rescue me. We need you to rescue us 
from this or that hardship. But we also recognize that in your good and wise purposes, you may choose not to rescue us from this or that affliction. And so help us to trust in your purposes. Help us to trust that your word is true and that you are using this, even this, for our good and to make us like Christ. So that by the work of the Spirit, using the Scriptures of God, our sinful discontent becomes transformed into a godly discontent that rests in a godly contentment in this fallen world. So that we can say, even through a stutter, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And friends, there is coming a day where our education will be complete, where we will graduate from this school of contentment. I already mentioned it, but it is when either the Lord calls us home or when the Lord Jesus returns for us. Until then, we will continue to stumble But by God's grace, we have one who has shown us the way, who has given us His Spirit to enable us to follow Him in faithfulness. The question for you is, if you're not a believer in Christ today, friend, there is only frustration apart from Christ the the joy and satisfaction that you experience in this discontented world is a kindness of God, but it is temporary. And there is a satisfaction. There is a joy. There is a holy discontent that leads to godly rest of soul that can be known only in the person of Jesus Christ. Will you go to Him today? And if your hope today is in Christ, where is it that God is perhaps exposing sinful discontent in your life? Where is it that He is calling you to take a step forward in moving from sinful discontent instead to a godly discontent that gives way to godly contentment? Rest in the purposes of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we pause once more and come to You, Father, thank You. Thank You that the promise is sure and true. That You know our frame. That You remember that we are dust. That we are weak. That we are frail. That we need the help that only You can provide. Heavenly Father, thank You that You have provided chiefly for the rescue that we need from our sin. And You have provided for that in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You, Father, that in Christ we can know freedom from slavery to sin. That we can know the freedom of following You faithfully. 
Thank you, Father, that we can know the empowerment of your Spirit to grow in putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Father, we pray that in this week ahead, as we walk through a discontented world, as we experience in our own lives discontent, we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes to see where our frustrations, our disappointments are rooted in sin and are motivated by selfishness. And help us, Father, to confess that sin to You. Help us, Father, instead to look to You, to trust in Your purposes and promises, to look to You to be our Rescuer in Christ both now and forever. And we pray, Father, that You would help us to grow in resting and trusting in Your purposes and so cultivate within us an increasing godly contentment in this world of sin and sorrow. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the help that you provide to us in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.